What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I'm Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Today, we're going to talk about decarbonizing aluminum, a metal you are likely familiar with because you interact with it in your everyday life. Aluminum foil in your kitchen or the soda can you're drinking from, also the cars and airplanes you travel in, the windows and doors in your home or office, or as a conductor for electrical parts, and so many other things. It's also infinitely recyclable. So I speak with Sharon Mustry, metals and mining analyst at BNEF, along with Julia Atwood, our head of sustainable materials. And we talk about a research note they recently wrote titled Decarbonizing Aluminum Technologies and Costs. Now, this research note was one of a series that BNEF is doing on the hard to abate sectors, and it was not a short piece of research. And it likely won't surprise you that the solutions are complex. But one thing is clear. The cleaner your energy sources, the cleaner the aluminum for this very energy-intensive metal. If you'd like to read more about this topic, it can be found at the Bloomberg Terminal at BNEFGo or on BNF.com or our mobile app. As a reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a complete disclaimer at the end of the show. But for now, let's speak with Sharon and Julia about decarbonizing aluminum. Sharon, Julia, thank you for being on the show today to talk about aluminum. Thank you, Dana. Thanks for having us, Dana. We're going to refer to it as aluminum on the podcast today, although I will say, so you guys are recording from New York, I'm recording from London, and they call it aluminum here, and I did a little bit of research on it. And as it turns out, many chemists also call it aluminum, and it's otherwise just a real cultural divide, and there's no excellent reason (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for why we give it extra <laughs> syllables here. There's a funny story about that where I was always told that they were looking at the periodic table and thinking about the different pronunciations and spellings. And they were like, okay, one of you can get aluminum and one of you can get like sulfur with a pH. And I'm not sure who negotiated what, but it kind of sounds like aluminum lost out here. <laughs> Okay, somewhere, somewhere in there, uh, in the folklore of the periodic table, everybody, this is for your next cocktail party chat. Okay, so here we are, we're going to talk about the decarbonization of aluminum, which has a lot of different pathways. So as those who are listening to the show realize, uh, when we talk to analysts, we're talking to them about a in-depth piece of research that they've written. And this one is a doozy. It's 50 pages. So we are going to do our very best to pull out some of the most interesting parts. But of course, there will always be more. So I would like to start by really understanding the scale of the industry and the scale of the emissions issue. So first of all, where are we finding aluminum and, and how big of an industry is this? Dana, we really think of aluminum as one of the major metals. When you think about them, you've got steel, and steel is a huge industry. And then you have aluminum, which is second, but quite a bit behind steel in terms of volume. So it's seen as 
a material that you use when you need a slightly more advanced metal. So it's used a lot in airplanes, it's used in kind of middle of the road bicycles, it's used in cars where it's important for them to be a little bit lighter, like potentially in electric vehicles. So the aluminum industry is kind of an order of magnitude smaller than the steel industry. And because it is made with hydropower in a lot of places, that also means that its emissions aren't on the same scale. So whereas steel is about 7 or 8% of global emissions, you have aluminum being more like 1% of global emissions. So very meaningful, especially if you think it's one material contributing 1% of emissions, but it's not, it's not as big a problem as steel. And so that's why it often seems like kind of an easier place to start when you're trying to negotiate net zero emissions by 2050. One of the things that I found out when I was prepping for today was that it's also the most plentiful metal in the Earth's uppermost layer. So there we are. We've got lots of aluminum out there and we see it in all parts of the industry. So this 1% of emissions that come from aluminum, would you consider this one of the difficult to decarbonize sectors? Or is this one where you know the solutions are readily available and may just be an issue of implementing them? We have a kind of a combination here, Dana. It'll depend what part of the supply chain you're looking at and which technologies. For primary aluminum, it's kind of in a great position because the biggest emitting process within that production is going to be electrified already. So you essentially just need to figure out how to make that electricity clean. And as Julia mentioned, a lot of these smelters have the benefit of being close to hydropower. So they're already pretty much clean for most of their emissions, but they have to deal with about 30% of emissions that aren't just smelting. And then for the ones that don't have that luck, they have a big challenge of where do they get clean power from and how do they balance that with the smelter load. And then when you look at recycling, recycling is in a way less challenging because it uses less energy, but it's also more challenging because it uses thermal processes rather than electrified processes. So both recycling and alumina, which are thermal-based processes, they will need to change either the fuels used for their energy or will need to electrify and also incorporate clean electricity. And then there's also always the option of CCS. However, we find it tends to be very expensive. So let's talk about the different stages of the primary aluminum process. And so we've got mining, refining, anode production, smelting, casting, and then the final goods. Where is the majority of the emissions coming from or where, which areas may be plural? The majority of emissions, about two thirds, is going to come from the smelting process. And then one third is roughly going to come from the refining process, so converting bauxite into alumina. The smelting process, it's purely electricity, and then a bit of it is going to be from anode consumption. So in the process itself, you use carbon anodes. As they are used up, they release CO2. So that's a minor part of the smelting process, but yeah, most of it is going to be electricity. Okay, so electricity, clean energy, that's something we at BNEF know a thing about. Where does 
the electricity for this industry largely come from right now. You had mentioned that hydropower was the primary source of green electricity for aluminum. Is that the majority that's being produced? Or is there a real opportunity to displace things like coal and gas? I'd have to say no, hydropower isn't the major source, not by a long shot. And that's really because of China's dominance here. China makes more than half of the world's aluminum. And a lot of that is with electricity that's been generated using coal power. Now, China is recognizing that this is going to be an issue for them. And they were starting to see them actually moving their capacity to provinces in China where there is a lot of hydropower. So hydro is the best solution in the initial stages where you can find it because you need that power 24-7. And luckily, we do have a lot of expertise with energy modeling at BNF because one of the tough things that Sharon had to do in this modeling was to figure out what kind of a price and what kind of resources we could use to get 24-7 clean power out of things like wind and solar in places where you don't have hydro. That was tough. We had to pull in a lot of BNF models and try to figure that out. And it did bump up our electricity prices a little bit. If you think about the cheapest PPAs, they're like $15 a megawatt hour. We were using something more like in the 40s and 50s because we had to account for that balancing. So definitely the aluminum industry is arcing towards clean power. And goodness me, I don't know where else, but in China, you could just pick up a smelter and move it to a province where you have hydropower. But it's going to be challenging for them to work out the balancing. So hydropower is definitely very location specific. So I can understand why that can't be the solution for every single green aluminum or aluminum manufacturer. So what are some of the other solutions that exist? Specifically with smelting, you'll essentially have to use clean electricity if you want to be competitive. If you want to use offsets or CCS, it's in our modeling going to be too expensive. If you're trying to use clean electricity, you have several options. Basically, we've seen in parts like the Middle East, they're starting to use solar power. And the way they do this is by buying huge PPAs with kind of their sleeved PPA. So you buy it from a utility that can firm up this power for you rather than buying it directly from a single project. So that's going to provide this 24-7 power that Julia is talking about. You're going to make sure that there's no risk to your smelter that if the power goes off for more than a couple hours, you'll essentially lose the asset. So these kind of new contracts with PPAs are able to give a solution. However, they're in a sense, virtual clean power. So you pay kind of for your total power consumed in the year, but you can't be sure that every electron you're consuming is actually solar versus another thing that it was firmed up with. And there's also additional costs that you pay for firming it up too. So it ends up being more expensive. What we think might happen in the future is that they'll mix storage technologies with things like solar or wind or a combination of solar and wind. So we've heard actually from one of these companies doing it in the Middle East that they might try pumped hydro. And there's kind of clever solutions being discussed with pumped hydro. You can actually use old mine pits 
as well to do pumped hydro. So the industry is going to have to be quite creative. And then there's also kind of getting more expertise about training your kind of power side of, of the company and getting them to trade your excess generation, make money off of that, and potentially get, gaining new revenue streams. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So these clean power purchase agreements are more expensive as you're identifying. So that does therein lie a place for innovation. Would you say that the aluminum industry is actively looking to green itself? Or is it one of the industries that maybe the attention hasn't been on it as of yet in terms of a net zero target? I think aluminum is one of those industries that recently came under pressure, as with many other metals and materials companies. So right now, there is a lot of interest in green aluminum. We've seen really large companies like Rusal, they're starting to kind of spin off their green assets so that they can market themselves as a green company. So there is some kind of interesting movements. However, it's still quite new to the industry. And Ultimately, these are materials producers and the fact that so much of the costs and also the risks in producing aluminum have to do with power. There is kind of a large room for learning and for innovation on the power side that could help them become greener. The only thing I'd add to that is we actually have been tracking the companies that are making net zero targets. When we tallied that up next to global aluminum capacity, it looks like about 19% of it is covered by corporate net zero goals right now. That's pretty comparable to steel. It's well behind what governments have done. So if you look at global emissions and how many of those are covered by governments, it's more like 50% and it's increasing every day. So industry as a whole is kind of lagging in terms of net zero commitments. And it's because they're waving this banner of hard to abate and trying to claim that they should get a lot of the emissions that might be going spare from somewhere else. But honestly, I think a lot of people look at the aluminum sector and say, come on, electrified power is already becoming greener. That's going to take care of itself, right? And I think what Sharon's just illustrated is it's really not something that the aluminum industry can just leave to the power sector. They need to take a little bit of responsibility too. Hopefully there lies a opportunity for us to choose green or we'll get to it recycled aluminum. But in a moment, before we get there, you know, you mentioned innovation and an area that people in our industry are talking about a lot is hydrogen. Is hydrogen powered aluminum something that we think will be used widely or even even in a, a good number of cases? Or is it one of those things that just fits into the general energy mix? And yeah, it's a solution, but maybe very expensive. <laughs> I think if I ever see an aluminum smelter powered by 
hydrogen, I will be pretty gobsmacked. And my little engineer heart is kind of shriveling at the ideas of the efficiency <laughs> losses there. <laughs> but where hydrogen can play a role, of course, we couldn't leave it out, you know, in this research report, is really in the aluminum recycling. Because there you're just, you're heating up a furnace, you're chucking in a bunch of scrap aluminum, you just need something to provide some heat. And we do think that hydrogen can be pretty competitive there when you're looking at alternatives like biofuels or electrification or CCS. So if there's a role for hydrogen to be paired with aluminum, it's going to be in recycling. Which is a great place for us to get to in terms of recycling and circular. So let's let's talk about that a little bit more. I'm remembering when I was a kid collecting cans and getting a rebate actually in the state of California, I think I got five cents per can, which added up and uh, made me feel pretty good about myself when I went to recycle the cans. And I think that still exists. Now, the question is, is it profitable for the aluminum industry to be recycling this? Are, Are they getting a lot more than five cents per can every time we turn one in? Because as we know, waste streams, just because something can be recycled doesn't mean that it is economically viable for it to be recycled. Five cents a can. Dana, I think it's still five cents a can. So clearly they haven't moved on that much. <laughs> and actually, it's, it's, it's a very interesting point in the market where you're trying to incentivize this group of mass actors, whether that's the girl guides or kids or people going around looking through everybody's recycling on my street in Brooklyn to see if they can fish out any of the cans or bottles. This is a market on the collection side where a very small change in price can have a huge impact. So Oregon went from having a five cent deposit and they were getting about 60% of their beverage containers collected. They doubled that to 10 cents, which, you know, a dime, it's not that much, not a big deal. Suddenly they were getting more than 80% of their beverage containers returned. So on the collection side, you don't need to do much to incentivize people. Oh, that's it. It's a deposit. It's not, they're not paying me for the can. I've already paid for it. I'm just getting my money back. I think when you were a kid, your mom paid for it. <laughs> I think so. And she, Maybe I, I owe her, you know, a few <laughs> coins. She augmented your allowance a little bit there with the can deposit. But in terms of, is recycling make sense? Is it going to make sense for the aluminum industry? Yeah, it does. I mean, scrap prices have started to rise. We've seen most scrap prices across steel and aluminum and plastics all rising. So that's why everybody should be fishing out PET bottles as well as their aluminum cans. But you still have like a production cost well below the price of aluminum. And if you have a closed loop system like a lot of automakers do and you know what you're getting, then it's a pretty good deal. But When you start talking about net zero, that's when things get a little tricky, which I'll let Sharon talk about. Just to add on to what Julia said, we think that in our modeling, we'll get close to about 39% of total aluminum supply coming from secondary sources. So that still leaves a majority of the industry having to produce from primary aluminum and having to decarbonize the secondary production, which has a lot lower emissions in itself, but there's still some emissions you have to address. So to get to net zero, really where we have to focus on is the power we use for smelting and then the fuels we use for alumina refining. Hydrogen is going to be important there too, 
as will be electrification, essentially. And the challenge is not only the costs, which we think when you read our note, there are clear pathways um, in terms of cost, but it's also going to be these kind of more nuanced issues of availability of these fuels, how you incorporate them into greenfield versus brownfield existing projects, how you kind of try these technologies out and figure out which one suits your business best, depending on your location or things like that. So availability of the energy sources. And then, you know, I'm going to go back to these cans because I'm fixated on this memory. Availability of the aluminum for recycling. So my question really comes down to, is there enough supply of recycled aluminum coming from vehicles all over the place for us to actually meet demand or at least meet a good percentage of existing demand for aluminum? And also, what is the future demand for aluminum? Do we see this as going up dramatically? And is this a space that maybe is 1% of global emissions now, but could be a lot more if we don't take care of the problem? Yeah. So in terms of meeting demand right now with recycling, we can meet about 30% of demand, a little bit higher. And then by 2050, which is when we're aiming to get to net zero, we can meet about 39% of demand. And then Julia has run some scenarios, which she can walk us through if she wants. We could improve recycling and get a bit above 40, but not that much more. So there's no way essentially, that we can meet 100% of demand just from recycling. However, we can improve some things, and that's still worth doing. And then in terms of demand increasing, I'll let Julia give her take here. But yes, demand will increase in the near term and then kind of plateau in the future from our modeling. I think that was a great summary. How much of supply you can meet with scrap really depends on what happens to demand. And in all of the modeling that we've done so far, we see aluminum demand carrying on growing all the way out to 2050. So we think that plateau really happens after that. And what this depends on, and the reason why you can't push it any further than about you know, 40% of total aluminum demand, really has to do with how much aluminum did you use in the past and how long is that being used for? Because if it's still in your airplanes flying around, you can't just grab them out of the sky and say, well, sorry, we need this for beams for a uh, building now, come back. <laughs> so if there is some earth-shattering, amazing innovation in material science, and we find something way better and way lower carbon than aluminum, sure, demand could change. But assuming that we carry on pretty much as we are, There are a lot of places that are going to want to use more aluminum. If we're doing a lot more flying around, we're going to need more airplanes, more aluminum. We also have a really awesome report that looks at how much more transmission is going to need to be built. And our colleague Sanjit Sangara wrote that. It's an amazing note, and it also looks at all of the aluminum that you would need there. So the energy transition, you have to have aluminum for that as well. So that's why we think it's going to be tough for recycled material to make up a more than significant fraction. I mean, you can you can push it to like just over 50% at certain points, which is pretty cool. So suddenly you've got more aluminum being made from scrap than from ore, but that is a very extreme scenario. 
And it basically means we need to mobilize every girl guide out there to be not just collecting cans, but to be yanking aluminum doors and, and trunks and hoods off cars as well. So it's part of the solution for the energy transition is definitely going to lead to decarbonization in other sectors, but decarbonizing this specific sector, if I really had to sum it up, what I'm hearing from you is it really comes down to cleaning up the grid, power purchase agreements and looking at a cleaner, greener grid for production. What else really stood out to you when you were doing this? Because this was really a thought exercise to go through things like hydrogen and CCS and a lot of these technologies, which really have some economic barriers right now, but we hope will be part of this decarbonization mix for the future. What was the thing that stood out to you most across everything that you researched? One of the more surprising things was that it's not that straightforward just to rely on clean power for smelting. So we'll have to be a bit more creative on how we use that clean power. And it's going to be a huge challenge for the industry and something that will be interesting to see what solutions we get out of. Beyond that, the role of hydrogen was also very interesting, both in recycling and in alumina refining. So in recycling, what we found is that it's quite It's still viable, but quite expensive right now. But by 2050, that'll probably be one of the more competitive technologies, not only because of a lower cost, but because of how much you can scale it, right? So there's not that many restrictions on availability of hydrogen if the industry really needs it. And similar with alumina, hydrogen is one of the more expensive options at the moment, but it'll become one of the cheaper options in by 2050. And the good news there too is that hydrogen is being produced in countries that are already kind of mining or metals in like heavy in their industry. So it'll be quite convenient to have it close by. It'll probably reduce the cost. So we see a big role for hydrogen too. If I can add one thing, what I found really cool was that I was stealing myself when we were writing this note and doing the modeling for having to write an entire section on all of the carbon prices that were going to be needed. And I was expecting them to be like $50, $100, the stuff that we can only dream of. But what we found was that there are actually routes where you can make aluminum today at a lower price than the fossil fuel business as usual. That blew my mind because that's not just a sustainability mandate for this, it's an economic mandate. And that means that companies don't really have anywhere to hide here now. So that is pretty cool. I mean, the modeling that we've done says you can make it 5% cheaper today. Admittedly, you have to start building with a new inert anode technology, but by 2050, it's 12% cheaper. And in such a tight margin industry as aluminum, that's really meaningful. So that brings up a good point, though, in terms of competitiveness of this industry, because as you mentioned at the very beginning, when we started recording, you know, huge percentage, what was it, half of the aluminum that's manufactured in the world right now, at least from a primary standpoint, is coming out of China. So how do companies from other parts of the world, how do they compete? Is it by looking for these 
uh, if they're looking at making green aluminum, these cost efficiencies, the, this 5% that you're discussing, is it from really focusing in on recycling and only having primary aluminum as in when you can't meet demand that way? How do they maintain being competitive? So you can't really be competitive in aluminum unless you have cheap power costs. And that's going to be a problem in China as well as around the world. China has the benefit of having pretty low capital costs, which aid with essentially being able to recover their money sooner with slightly higher OPEX costs because power is a bit more expensive in China. But if you're producing outside of China, you essentially have to decarbonize without sacrificing this competitive advantage on power costs. And there's going to be a huge pressure for these companies to make sure that if they are switching to clean energy, that it's still competitive. And kind of the upper limit there is around $40 per megawatt hour. But just what Julia was saying now is that actually renewables with their kind of current cost declines have the potential to make aluminum processes a lot cheaper if the companies are able to incorporate them into their operations. So that's kind of the the bright silver lining for aluminum is that renewables could be a huge tool to become competitive. And countries that already have renewables being integrated into their grids or being built near infrastructure that aluminum smelters can use are going to have a huge competitive advantage. I know this research note was very much about technologies and costs, and there was definitely enough there to fill this 50 pages, but I want to know about the manufacturers. So is this a fragmented industry or are there a few very large companies that are doing this? It tends to be a few very large companies. Like I mentioned, this is a very high capex industry. So you need to be well monetized and also kind of need to have the government on your side to succeed. So there's not going to be that many primary producers in any given region. However, recycling is another deal altogether. Uh, Recycling in, in general for aluminum is going to be a lot more distributed. It's going to potentially make it more difficult for all these smaller companies to have access to these new technologies and try them out and have kind of the money as well to have these experiments, let's say with hydrogen or stuff like that. But it means that there's a lot more diversity that can bring innovation into the industry potentially sooner too. So we keep coming back to costs here. And I think one of the things that we found with some sources of renewable energy that they have become cheaper and will continue to become cheaper over time and are increasingly cost competitive and the preferred source of energy in a bunch of locations when compared to heavy emitting sources of generation. However, here we're seeing that the renewable energy sources might end up actually being at a premium for this particular application because of how they're being used. You mentioned that the government has to be on your side in order for this to work. Do you see policy intervention? Is this something that governments are actively talking about in different parts of the world right now? It's so dependent on region. I mean, any kind of materials manufacturing always gets the attention of a government because they see it as almost a national security issue. If you don't have access to aluminum and steel, a lot of your construction is going to grind to a halt. 
So there's always been some kind of subsidy or support for materials writ large. When it comes to net zero materials, you're starting to see policy just at the very edges getting involved here. And that might be something like lowering electricity prices by not making you know, a smelter pay grid fees or something like that. And that'll sweeten the deal for electrification. Or you're seeing some governments, potentially Germany, thinking about how they might have procurement mandates for green metals or look at, as was discussed at our Munich summit, about how you could judge uh, a vehicle on its whole of life carbon footprint rather than its tailpipe emissions. So that starts to make things like green aluminum start to look a lot better. And it's a, a less direct way of giving some support there. Out there in podcast land, interested in knowing more about decarbonizing aluminum, just the tip of the iceberg, but definitely an interesting industry to watch, is going to be one of a series of research notes that we are writing about decarbonizing the hard-to-abate parts of the metals industry. Am I correct? And, And on that, which is the next one up? Next is going to be steel. Then we're going to do pet cams and then cement. So by the end of it, we should have a pretty good idea about how much pain all those industries are going to be in. Hard to abate sectors. If you're in one, we can go through this thought process together. Thank you very much for joining today. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.